Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. Uh, if you've been following, I uh, took a little bit of a break, partly because of my life circumstances, but then we started up and kept going, and we've been going pretty regularly over the summer and talking about issues, especially in regards to education policy, but education innovation, and especially as we come out of COVID, what solidifies in our profession, but then what are what are what are the new normals and what are the new changes and even some of the new hopes. And so that's where it's been great. And I'm always blessed um, to be introduced by to 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 uh, interviews and people doing great stuff from friends. And so today I'm with Chara Hegde, who serves as uh, CEO for Alpha Public Schools, which is a K-12 network of charter schools in my home city of San Jose, California, and where they focus on preparing students for college and career. And so before assuming the role of CEO, she served as Alpha's chief school officer, directing the academic program vision and providing coaching and management to several key senior leaders. And then prior to joining Alpha, uh, she was the founder, executive director, and principal of Cornerstone Academy. And that's where we're going to start our story for today. Um, but then since its opening in 2010, Cornerstone Academy has been amongst the highest performing schools in the city of San Jose and was named a California Distinguished School in 2014 and 2018. And I got introduced to Shara through a great friend of mine that 17 years ago I met in Boston, Susan Yam, who we started a school together. So there's a lot of like, you know, fun and enjoyment and, and, and excitement. And I love being introduced to new friends through old friends. And so Shara, thank you for being with me. Thank you for making time today. Thank you for uh, the work that you're doing. But real quick question to get us started. Sure. You started a school. What was, where did that, like, where did that idea, desire come from? Or what was the need that you were trying to meet at that period of time with Cornerstone Academy? Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks again, Eric, for having me um, on your podcast today. Um, when I started Cornerstone, I was 25 years old. I did not know a, a whole lot in this space. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that in some ways that's a good thing because you can really dream big and you have the energy and the work ethic to make your, your dream a reality. Um, I had been a teacher for a couple of years before that, really enjoyed teaching, really enjoyed my kids, loved being in the classroom. But I was, I was looking at the bigger system around me. I was like, this is not working. This is not working for this group of students in particular who don't always go home to uh, ample resources and access to all the opportunities. And so the question for me is, you know, how can this look different? How can we really prioritize their academic achievement in the school building? How can we set up culture in a way that really um, facilitates learning, makes them come alive and makes them really excited to be in the building every day? Um, and so that was where Cornerstone was born. And I was really fortunate to have some people who believed in me and backed me with both um, coaching and finances and some, some early uh, seed money to get me off the ground. And, uh, you know, in 2010, we opened our doors. Uh, I have so many questions, like, because yeah. you talk about like all the things that, you know, when you're young and sure of yourself and ambitious, it's like, oh, there's lessons to be learned there. But before we maybe get to some of those places, how does the cornerstone story 
at, fit into your current work as CEO as at, at Alpha with Alpha Public Schools here in San Jose and in in in, in our area? Yeah, so Cornerstone operated as a single site school, a single site charter school for about six years. And so we saw some great early success. Um, but what I realized as I was getting into year four, five, and six of, of leading that school is that it was a lot of work. And I didn't have a bigger system to support me in doing that work. So it all lived and died with me. And that was not a great place to be in, especially for ensuring the success of the school and, and keeping our promises to our families. And so I began thinking, like, how do I get this, the resources and support that I need to stay in the work, to keep this school running at a high level of excellence, um, and then to also just make sure that we don't have any slip ups here. If, if, you know, if I'm hit by a bus and this school, you know, falls apart, then I haven't succeeded. And so we worked with um, a, a, an existing CMO or charter management organization called Alpha Public Schools at the time to orchestrate a nonprofit merger in which Cornerstone was acquired by Alpha and became one of its four schools. And so today, uh, fast forward a bunch of years, I'm now the leader of that organization in all four schools, um, which is really exciting because I still get to stay deeply connected to Cornerstone while also um, expanding my impact over multiple other schools. Well, and the interesting thing about that is it sounds like a lot of that transition happened as you had as we headed into COVID, right? And then your academic leadership in a lot of ways was during of the of the school of the system was during COVID. And then you took over as CEO maybe towards the end of that. But like it just reflect for me a little bit, you know, on on saying, hey, you know what, we started a school, it's a ton of work. And I think a lot of people who are in the startup phase, they don't always know how much work it is. And, and then and then you move into this new system in this new place. And then automatically and immediately we have this like pandemic. And then the reaction, if you reflect on the last three years in particular, like what what do you what are the reflections that you have on your journey with Cornerstone and Alpha and the work that you're doing as an academic and executive leader? I think, I mean, it's very simple, but the work is so hard, but so needed. And now more than ever, I think the space, the sector is calling for leaders who have that little extra something to give and that fortitude and resilience to work through complicated, ill-defined problems such as a global pandemic and try to navigate an organization and our students and our families and staff towards a, a viable solution. And I'll tell you, I don't think I got it right all the time. Um, I think there were decisions I look back on and I said, well, you know, maybe I could have done something differently in that moment. But I, I also know I did the best with the information that I had and tried to think about my stakeholders and what was best for our students at all times. And so, you know, it, it is such hard work. It's really hard work and just so much kudos for every educator who is going through it and has stuck through it for all the years before and through the pandemic. It's it's a special breed of folks there. So it is a special breed of folks. And it is. And I think there is a lot of that places we kind of resettle of, you know, through that resilience of saying, hey, you know, what what did we discover and how did we just do the best that we did? I, there, there's one question I want to ask before I, I kind of start thinking of like, you know, what's next or future or bigger picture, things that are on your mind and you're wondering, 
is, you know, Cornerstone, you, you mentioned, and even, you know, the website mentions the success that you had, you know, the positive things that you were doing, you know, Alpha, you come in as the academic, you know, leader and, you know, the positive things there. Reflect a little bit for me on the last number of years, you know, I guess it'd be 13 years now since you started Cornerstone, where it's like, you know what, I'm really proud of we really met a need here because you mentioned there was a need and you wanted to meet it or you thought that like, hey, I think we might be able to do this better or differently. Like, so when you reflect on those 13 years, like what really gives you joy as you look back on the good work that you've done? I'll share a moment with you that happened two weeks ago. Um, I was at the Alpha Cindy Avitia High School graduation and I gave my speech and I shook the hand of every graduate that crossed the stage. And several of those graduates had been my founding kindergarten students at Cornerstone. And so that first day they arrived at Cornerstone, I shook their hand as they walked through the gate and walked to kindergarten. And two weeks ago, I was able to shake their hand as they crossed the stage, got their diploma, and then started their college journey. Um, and all of them are going to college. And so for me, it's moments like that when things come full circle that you see, you know, those very early days come to fruition. I'm, I am so incredibly proud and joyful of that. I, I took so many pictures. I, I think I cried a little bit, um, but you know, it, it's, it's an amazing thing to go full circle and to be with a group of students for 13 years and see their journey. It is incredible, isn't it? It's amazing. It's one of the questions is you think about like what's coming next or forward, or as you think about the the innovations needed to meet the needs of, of our current students, but then future students, because I had the opportunity to start a school, you know, with Susan, you know, in, in Boston in, you know, the early 2000s, but then had the opportunity to move back to Chicago and reboot a school. And, and, you know, it's, it's always interesting when we look back, it's like, you know what? I think I would have made different decisions knowing what I know now, you know, of restart of starting or restarting a school and, and doing some things different. But but as you look at the future of schools and especially the unique nature of San Jose, because San Jose, I, I, I tell people, like, come visit and see your future. Right. You know, it's I love San Jose. I love living here. I love being here and working here. Um and it's a super innovative place, but then educationally, it's a really unusual, unique place in a lot of ways. What are your hopes or what are the things that you're seeing as you look to the future for Alpha and for the schools that you have, but then just even for education for students overall? Yeah, San Jose, is it's such a diverse, beautiful city. And I think as educators, we have to be mindful of who we're serving. And so as we think about what our students need, I think cultural relevance in curriculum and making sure that we're being uh, thoughtful and honoring what our students come to the table with is, is supremely important. And so I, I feel like working in this city has just been such a gift in that respect. You get to learn a whole lot from your students and families and, and they learn a lot from you And when they come in, those, in that school building. Um, I think that San Jose also though has challenges that are that are unique to that city. So we are we have 19 school districts, right? And so there's a lot of local control, but it doesn't always make perfect sense because the dividing line um, between two school districts is pretty arbitrary. 
And so you've got to navigate the challenging politics of any given district in our county, um, while also kind of keeping your eyes on the prize and making sure that uh, you are meeting the needs of your kids. And so I think more broadly, um, thinking about what does education look like in the next 10 to 20 years, we're just at this really interesting inflection point. Like COVID caused a lot of havoc, especially for lower income communities, um, such as the one that Alpha serves. And so you have students who have experienced some learning loss who are not performing at the same levels that they were pre-pandemic. And you can look at that and say, I've really got to bridge, close this gap or bridge the gap. Or you can look at it and say, like, what might what opportunity might this give us, right? To do things differently, to look at learning differently, and to think about what are we prioritizing. Um, I think we've all we all know uh, AI is coming. We know that technology is is evolving, that the jobs of the future are changing. And I think there's this real opportunity if we can kind of get through some of the politics and bureaucracy of you know the city and the state to, to redefine what education could be. And, and San Jose has been an epicenter of innovation for so many years in the tech sector. If we can get that to cross over and really um, you know, infuse the education sector, I just think we can. There's so much potential here. Um, I think the most the most interesting way I heard it crystallized recently is the the world of the future. Um, there's well-defined problems and ill-defined problems, and the world of the future is going to be filled with ill-defined problems. And students who are well-equipped to navigate ill-defined problems without a lot of structure, without a lot of handholding, those are the students that are going to really be set up for success. And so like, how do we structure what happens in our classroom to set our students up to solve those ill-defined problems? Um, so I think that was a really interesting framework for me as, as I'm thinking about the future and what we need to be doing. All right, I wanna jump in and I'm gonna give you the choice, right? Cause there's all kinds of ill-defined problems, right? You know, you think about San Jose in particular where the average cost of a house is over a million dollars, right? You know, single family home. You think about like salaries for educators in our community. Um, you think about the unique nature of wealth and poverty in our in our community is really interesting and compared to other cities where I've lived in Los Angeles, you know, Chicago and Boston. Um, and then and then you do you look at like the tech nature of 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 different things. So there's all kinds of like ways you could go, but then you also look at students, the learning loss and the and being behind and and high intensive tutoring and how that helps or like even the social emotional stuff that we see that comes out of the pandemic or even the things that we're seeing solidified social emotional wise with tech devices, you know, especially the iPhone or phones like smartphones. And then there's, and then there's maybe just, you know, the ill-defined problem of like, Hey, you know, like you mentioned cultural, you know, relevant pedagogy to like, what does this mean to me in a very diverse city um, in, in the United States at this point in time, right? So pick one of those ill-defined problems <laughs> and, and give me some thoughts and ideas and wonderings that you're working on and you're working through. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of the things that you described, you know, poverty, co housing, cost of living, cell phones, mental health, all of that, um, it's, it's fascinating, but I, I think that at the heart of it, we're all humans and our kids are human beings and they they seek connection. And so I think before we tackle any of that, 
we've got to figure out how to get our students to fall back in love with school and see school as a place that they are joyful and excited to be at every single day, that it's a place where they can connect and be in community with others. And it's safe. It's a place where they feel that belonging. Um, right now, that's, I think, the hardest challenge that at least my organization is facing because we do have all these distractions. So I think I would start there. Like, how do we get students to fall back in love with school? Um, I think in terms of some of the other challenges, there's stuff that's within our locus of control and there's stuff that I think, you know, falls outside of our locus of control. I don't know if my school system can solve the housing crisis um, given our, you know, our uh, limited resources. But I do think there's additional work to be done with parents and families around cell phones and social media and the impact of that on a, a young child. Um, so many of our kids have cell phones in middle school and it's going to start seeping down into elementary school. I'm pretty certain of that. And it has such an impact on a young and developing brain. You know, I think there's um, a, a school of thought, like your prefrontal cortex is not developed until you're in your like late twenties or something like that. And, and, you know, we all went through our childhoods, you know, I, I'm, I'm 40. So we went through our childhoods and we didn't have this device kind of impacting our the, the way that we grew up and the way that we thought and formed opinions and our kids now do. And so I think for us, the priority is how do we educate parents to make sure they realize, you know, the game has changed. Like the way that students are approaching the world and approaching school and thinking about their lives and the decisions they make are being influenced by this little you know two by four device that they carry in their pocket every day. And so that's, a, I think, a place where, you know, I don't have a perfect solution. And I think it does require constant touch points and communication with families. Uh, but hopefully, you know, I'd like to see cell phones become less of an influence. I'm not certain I believe in banning them altogether because I think that that opens up a whole new can of worms and, and doesn't teach our kids how to self-regulate. But I do do believe that the the place they play in schools needs to be lessened. So I appreciate that those thoughts. And I appreciate it really, 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 really resonate with what you first said. It's like, how do we find the joy in what we do? Right. So I'm, I'm gonna take a little twist, maybe last question, and then I want to do a little lightning round with you. Okay. But but like last big question. Because I think a lot of times in, in the research shows us that the well-being and the joy of students is really impacted by the well-being and joy of the adult in the classroom, right? You know, so so what's one thing that you're rethinking about how do we how we bring joy and that love of, you know, love of students, love for students, love of learning, love of school back to our colleagues and the adults and the people that we get to do this work with? How are you rethinking that, you know, um, you know, in, 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 you know, as you start summer? So I, I've been playing around with this idea that has stemmed from a pilot that I'm running at my high school. At our high school, we had a shortage, a teacher shortage, of course. We couldn't hire for um, a physics teacher and a geometry teacher. And so we partnered with Course Mojo. And what they did is they zoomed in a virtual content expert. And then we had an in-person teacher really focusing on relationships, pushing students, building that executive functioning skill. 
it turned out that the results of this pilot were just as good as having an in-classroom teacher. But a key difference, we separated content from emotional support, coaching, and executive functioning, like work with our students. So we had two people responsible for two very different things. And I, I sat with this a lot because I'm like, wow, we ask our teachers to be content experts, to grade, to lesson plan, to make sure their classroom culture is, is strong. And then when kids are having a tough time to build that relationship and check in, we are asking too much of our educators. And so I'm, I'm playing with this idea of like, what if we were to separate those things? Um, and not entirely. I mean, a, a good teacher is going to build those relationships. But if we didn't hold teachers fully responsible for the emotional well-being of their kids and had other adults pushing in on that, how might we use that paradigm to really get students to fall back in love with school and let teachers become experts at teaching physics and geometry and you know English language arts and get their passion ignited in their content? Because I do believe a lot of educators, especially high school educators, they do love the content they're teaching. They want to get lost in that. And they want to get kids lost in that content and excited about it. But they can't do all the things. Um, so just wondering how we think about specialization in, in the role of a teacher and that black box of a classroom. Um, it's been something that's been on my mind for a while. I love it. I love it. And that could be a whole conversation or maybe that's a conversation for the future where it's just like we just talk about that because that is I, I think and, and I think it's this really interesting thing, right, especially coming out of coming out of COVID where some schools did and I'll, I'll use some distinct words here. They did virtual learning really well. Right. And some have kept with it, but then knowing supplement it with the human con connection and the human contact and the relational nature that was lost. And then some did this kind of just like remote learning that was very flat and very vague and 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 not connected at all. Um, and so that's where like, you know, it's really interesting, but that's a whole different conversation. But I was just gonna go through like, I can give you, I would just go lightning round. So just give me what comes to the top of your mind. Cause I, I, there's so many things that you touched on that I, I just want to go quick because it's like, there's way more conversations than all these. Um, book you're reading this summer that's helping you kind of like reset, rethink, or just kind of recharge. Um, Onward, The Art of Coaching Teams. It's by Elena Aguilar. I don't know if I got the title exactly right, but it's a, it's a really good book around building resilience and how do you coach your teams and how do you kind of manage yourself? Love it. Okay, so second question, because this is a question I get asked by leaders all the time. How do you manage yourself in the summer to take care of yourself and then to take care of the people around you as a leader? I wake up at 4.30 and exercise four times a week in my garage before the kids get up. I've got three of them in the house. Um, and drink a lot of water, which is why you'll always see me with this gigantic uh, tumbler full of water and uh, liquid IV powder. And then I just try to make sure I'm not, you know, putting burning the candle at both ends, trying to make sure I get the right amount of sleep and engage in activities that bring me joy. So I love it. What's the one activity you love doing during the summer? I love going to the beach. We have a whole setup with a uh, tent and a wagon and blankets and the coolers love going to the beach love it what's the one piece of advice right because we're seeing schools start up all over the country 
for many different reasons, the micro schooling stuff and coming out of the pandemic, but then even just school startups and there's some energy around this all over the country. As a school founder, what's the one piece of advice you wish you would have gotten? Get clear on your outcomes and the vision that you have and be able to articulate it with precision. Because if it lives in your head, it only lives in your head. It doesn't live with other people until you can articulate it with precision. I love it. I'd, I'd argue that's great advice for all school leaders. Um, that's really good and helpful for me who things get stuck upside up in my head too. Last question, last question. What's, um, when you look at the educational landscape and the work that you're doing and some of the things, what, what's, what's a great hope that you have for the next five years? I might be asking the world here, but I would love for this country to have a crisis of epic proportions where they really examine what education means in their life, not just when they have children, but you know, even as they go through life and for us to radically reinvest in this, in our system, get the best minds and brains in front of our kids and to do that with the lens of equity so that all children have access to that great school. There's no more moving to the right neighborhood or getting on a wait list or dealing with lotteries. Every kid has that, you know, amazing education that they can be so proud of and connect back to like 20 years later. I, I want that experience for every child. So I do think that's going to require like this radical reawakening of our consciousness in this country. But, you know, I'm, one in, can... I, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's um, do it. I love it. Shara, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you'll come back because there's so many other things that we could go deeper on and dig deeper on as you learn lessons, as you do your work and as you lead. And so thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was such a fun conversation.